Welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. I'm John Hall, and this week, I'm delighted to be joined by Diane Flint, the author of the recently published Wild, Tamed, Lost, Revived, the surprising story of apples in the South. This is a story of history, diversity, and the future. Stay tuned. You're about to learn a lot. But first, please go visit allaboutbeer.com. There, you can find original articles, reviews, news, insights, and podcasts. You can listen to shows like Beer Travelers, Brewer to Brewer, and the All About Beer podcast simply by searching All About Beer wherever you listen to shows. This show and all of the work we do is supported by you. Please go visit patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. There, a few bucks goes a long way to help keep the content fresh and fund writers, photographers, creators, and editors. And if you'd like to learn more about advertising on this show and others, please email info at allaboutbeer.com. Speaking of that, you know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere, online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. Take customers from picking it out to picking it up. Shopify syncs in-store inventory with Google, so when local customers search for that thing that they want that you have, bam, you're there. Demand meets supply. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash drinkbeer. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash drinkbeer to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash drinkbeer. For those who say social media is a bad thing, I get it. But occasionally, it can provide gems. For example, last week, I was scrolling through Facebook when I saw Sean Lilly Wilson, the founder of North Carolina's Full Steam Brewery, post about a new book he was reading, Wild, Tamed, Lost, Revived, The Surprising Story of Apples in the South. I was immediately intrigued and reached out to the author, Diane Flint, to come onto the show. She and her husband, Chuck, live in the Virginia Blue Ridge Mountains, where she was an apple grower and cider maker. She says, above all else, she is an insatiable learner, which led to the concept and writing of this book. She is a multiple-time James Beard Award finalist for Outstanding Wine, Spirits, or Beer Professional, and she founded the Foggy Ridge Cider Company in 1997 after leaving her corporate career, and she produced cider until 2018. There aren't nearly enough books on apples in the world, especially engaging and well-thought-out ones. But this book stands among the top in my mind, and based on what I've read, for not only the rich history and passion it provides, but also the personal narrative weaved throughout and the easy-to-understand approach, which helps put the subject in our hands. Press materials provided in advance give this description. Quote, Flint shows how southern apples, ranging from northern varieties that found fame on southern soil to hyper-local apples grown by a single family, have a history beyond the region, from Queen Victoria's Court to the Oregon Trail. Flint also tells the darker side of the story, detailing how apples were entwined with slavery and the theft of indigenous land. She relates the ways Southerners lost their rich apple culture in a less than a lifetime of a tree and offers a tentatively hopeful future, end quote. I can't say enough about this book. Good things about this book, I should say. Go get it, read it, and have it to come back to time and time again. You will not be disappointed. Flint, join me via Zoom. Here's our conversation. I'm not going to ask you to speak for the entire cider industry 
Um, but I'm also going to ask you to speak for sort of the entire cider industry. Um, when it comes to, to hard <laughs> cider in the U.S. right now, what's the state of things from your perspective? Hold on. Let... You know, I'm I'm not sure what age to ascribe to cider in America, whether it's adolescence or young adulthood. It is certainly out of infancy, where where it was when when I began my cider venture back in the late 1990s. There were just a handful of cideries when we got our license and opened our cidery in the early 2000s. And there was one big um, sort of mass producer, Woodchuck, in mm-hmm. Vermont. And and then there were a handful of, of what today we would call artisan cider makers, people who grew all of their own fruit or most of it and who crafted cider like winemakers make wine. You know, they were growing fruit. They were fermenting it carefully over long periods of time. It was a vintage product. So rather than making cider every month with juice that comes on a tanker and backs up to the loading dock and pumps in the tanks, they were harvesting apples in a season each fall and pressing those over the fall and winter, fermenting that vintage and, you know, doing whatever they did to it and then repeating the next year. And, and that was the model that I took for Foggy Ridge Cider. I, I saw myself as a as an orchardist slash cider maker and wanted to make cider that really spoke of place and terroir and apple varieties and the Southern Appalachians and all that. And since then, cider has really evolved and, and it has evolved like any consumer category there's a wider range of products. There, there's more on the mass market end. Uh, things have, um, some might say, devolved. I would say just diversified into all different styles of cider. I mean, some cideries um, kind of barely use apples. I mean, they're using lots of other juices and fruits and adjuncts and and you know a. a additive flavorings um and there have also there has also been a modest flowering of um artisan cider makers or vintage people who make vintage cider from fruit they grow or fruit they grow and source uh from nearby and you see that all over the country um anywhere you grow apples you see that and in researching this book I found excellent cideries in in um, in Kentucky and Tennessee and Georgia and um, just all over the South. Of course, North Carolina and Florida, North Carolina and Virginia are full of wonderful cideries that that grow fruit and and make a vintage cider. So, um, and that's a long-winded answer, but um, those that's my thoughts. Yeah, I, I, the idea of the tanker truck, I think, it, it is one that when I speak to farmers, when I speak to growers um, in the cider space, it comes up quite a bit because um, you're not really going to get that tawar. You're not going to really get um, 
you know, that, that soul um, that I think really wonderful small batch made ciders give off. Um, but that's also what the majority of cider drinkers are, are going for these days. Um, in your, in, in your years of producing cider, was there a, a way that you found to connect to those drinkers to introduce them and to, um, really help them explore depth of flavor um, when they discovered you and your ciders versus some of the tanker truck stuff? Yeah, there wasn't the tanker truck stuff in the South when I started. Uh, There was just me. And the second cidery was Albemarle Cider Works, which was very much in our mold. And it wasn't until, um, you know, Bold Rock and some of the more mass market focused came along that we saw this split in the South. So in the early days, um, it was people would come in our tasting room and say, what grapes is this made from? <laughs> they didn't know what cider was. So it was it was a different kind of education. And you know when we when we talk about tanker trucks, I want to make sure that there's a place for for every kind of cider. I mean you you, talk a lot about craft beer and a lot of beer drinkers in the country drink Miller Lite and like it just fine. And there's a certainly a place for that. And I I don't want to denigrate uh, cideries that make more of a session cider, a lower alcohol, simple beverage that's that's quaffable and and meant to be consumed um, and appreciated in a different way than a a more nuanced uh, artisan product. so, so my education early on was kind of what is cider, what is fermented cider, and people would want to see the press and they'd want to, you know, smell the 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 the, the ferments, and that was a that was a real education. Um, and since then, it's been really helping consumers um, know the difference between a cider made from, you know, the cheapest red delicious apples available fermented in a couple of weeks and you know high tannin cider apples um that you know fermented for eight weeks and and then you know aged for six months and and bottled in a in a you know method champenoise method it's it's been a, a i think a more um complex and nuanced education since then does that does that make sense it does it does and that's it's heartening to hear um as well just because i i i I don't regularly drink cider but when i do um i'm always sort of blown away by the sense of place um and the traditions and the um the thought that goes into small batch or you know locally made um you know and it, it it's tough to find that in beer um it's you know it can be tough to find that in wine as well and and, and cider really is just such a um a fun product of the land that it's yeah i i i like i i, I like how you how, how you phrase that um you, you brought up uh the idea of red delicious um and in your book, I, I I was I was struck in the way um 
that you had me thinking about apples almost from the jump of how ubiquitous they are. Um, we rarely notice them or pay attention um, to them and, and, and right. red delicious and some of these culinary apples that um, that we see all the time that are sliced for the happy meal or sliced for, um, you know, school lunches or, or, or held in our hand. Um, you forget just how many different varieties are out there um, or that could be out there or that used to, used to be out there. Um, when, when you first started thinking about this book and then researching this book um, is, is this, is this final product what you thought the book would be or were you pulled down rabbit holes into um, directions <laughs> that you, you just didn't consider? Oh, the latter for sure. <laughs> I, I love your, your term rabbit holes. The, um, of course my book is published by the university of North Carolina press under the Ferris and Ferris imprint, which is a, a great honor. Um, I just feel very honored to to have been chosen to be published in that very special imprint. Um, and as part of any book published by the UNC Press, Press, both my proposal and my book were peer reviewed. And when the reviewers came back um, on my proposal, on my book proposal, uh, one reviewer said, you know, this is a big topic. Diane's going to have to watch out for rabbit holes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so your comment certainly rings true. And I really approach this from a humanistic standpoint. Um, you know, a, a scientific survey is to, to have a, a theorem like smoking causes cancer and then go out and prove it or disprove it. And a humanistic inquiry is to say, I'm going to investigate the South and its apples, and I don't know where it's going to take me. And that was very much um, where I where I was and where my research was. And I I really went into this with um, John not not having a point of view to share, but I wanted to share my discoveries, the things I was learning, the surprises I made. And the subtitle of my book, The Surprising Story of Apples in the South, is really about my surprises, that the many things that I did not know about my region um, and my fruit. Uh, for example, I'm, I was born in, in Georgia. I, I'm from Georgia, born in Atlanta and raised in a small town, West Point, Georgia, right on the Alabama line. And I knew about a paragraph about the Cherokee presence in Georgia and the erasure of that presence after the Indian Removal Act and what's commonly referred to as the Trail of Tears. Mm -hmm. And what I did, didn't know was the rich tradition that indigenous people all over uh, the East had as farmers and as orchardists from the Seneca and New York who were just very skilled orchardists to the Cherokee and other indigenous tribes in the in the southeast, um, they were cultivators of trees and predated their their uh, growing apples predated uh, colonization in the south. And at the time of Indian removal, over half the Cherokee households in Georgia, over half the Georgia Cherokee households, had mature orchards. Um, of hundreds and even thousands of trees. 
That's incredible. Um, that sort of leads into the, the, the there's a chapter uh, or, or section in the book um, lost. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I was really struck by that because I, they, they're, they're, they're for a couple of reasons, um, living in New Jersey and having grown up here, there used to be a lot of orchards, um, and, and mostly done for hard cider, um, uh, production, uh, and prohibition killed that, uh, here. And, mm-hmm. um, every, every once in a while in somebody's backyard, um, or walking through a forest, you know, that, that previously was farmland, you might find some old trees. And every once in a while, um, somebody will, you know, hopefully do some research and say, oh, wow, this is such and such variety, you know, which hasn't been around forever, but this tree has survived for a hundred plus years, uh, if if not more, still bearing fruit um, every year. But it, it, it's very easy to forget, especially as we, you know, here we are at the end of October, uh, early November, um, with apple picking season just behind us that, you know, the, 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 I don't know, the entertainment, the, the agro-tourism that has come around, um, for some of these things, um, is made for Instagram and it's kind of fun, but it, it can be very easy to forget the important history that apples played in everyday life, um, for, for large swaths of this uh, of, of this country for so long. So, so bringing up, you know, um, the, the indigenous folks and, and, and what they were doing long before we all started thinking about that, it sort of goes into this lost chapter. And uh, I'm, I'm wondering with the history that you've learned, the business that you've run and where we are now, what are we missing out on in 2023? when it comes to apples? I think that's a very astute question um, because it touches on so many things. One of the things we lost was the use of apples. Today, Mm -hmm. we eat almost all our apples as fresh snacks, not even as an ingredient of a meal. And as you've referenced from colonial days on apples were woven into everyday life they were consumed in many ways they were dried they were preserved they were eaten fresh they were cooked in many many ways they were fed to animals um they were pressed into cider cider um of course is a southern beverage and in in colonial in the colonial south it was used as currency before there was a monetary system. There were two forms of currency, tobacco and cider. So it was they were, it was really part of, of everyday life. Um, apple orchards, especially cider orchards, you know, were featured in real estate advertisements and, and wills. They were they were totally integrated into life and into into everyday life. And now they're they're just a really and and a tiny adjunct <clears throat> and we lost our we lost our need for apples for drying we we lost our need to have fresh apples in, that ripened in june july august september uh, apples like we're picking this morning that ripen in november that will keep until april we don't need that anymore because we have refrigeration we have rail transport and we have 
a global apple economy. If our Washington state apples are are feeling kind of tasting kind of puny out late in the season, we've got apples from New Zealand and Chile. Um, so modernization and a global economy really, really has kind of pushed apples, the need for the these various types of, of apples into into the corner and and what we've lost we've lost flavor we've we've lost taste we've lost uh, the the diversity of apples that do lots of things for us because we don't need them to do those things anymore but i think the most important thing we've lost is history and culture you know each apple because apples are reproduced sexually and have to be grafted in order to reflect the fruit of the the original tree, the tree you want to replicate, each apple reflects a human desire. Somebody in history chose Grimes Golden and grafted it because it had certain value to that person. And, you know, does the does the South need 2,000 apple varieties? Well, probably not. But if you ask old timers in, Cass, in um, Chatham County, North Carolina, if they can live without the Aunt Sally apple, which was only grown in Chatham County, North Carolina, they would say, oh no, that's part of my family. My grandmother made pies with that apple. Or, you know, I remember my granddaddy, you know, lifting me up to the tree to pick an apple. You know, that, that's that cultural memory that we lose by losing our diverse fruit. Is there a way for I I, I was going to say for us to 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 get that back, and that that that's not it's not a fair way to um, to ask that question. But is there are you seeing a resurgence in connection to you know the yeah you know, go ahead no no, no I, one I, thing that no. yeah sorry <laughs> go ahead. Oh no 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 no! I I was mostly done with that with that choppy question that I was asking. I apologize. No, yeah, sorry to jump in. I, the, the one thing that the University of North Carolina Press asked me to spend more time on is is um, revived the last section of my book, yeah. and they wanted me to explore ways that Southerners are keeping apples in the ground, and there are lots of different models. You've already mentioned the tourism model. There's an orchard in North Georgia that's about 60 or 70 miles from Atlanta. And on a busy fall weekend, they'll have 15,000 people visit. And it's a real orchard. They have acres and acres of apples and they make cider and they they make apple ham pies. And it's, it's, a, it's a fourth generation orchard. Uh, it's not just a farm stand with a few trees and all the apples are trucked in from you know somewhere else. Um, so, so that's one way to keep apples in the ground. There are some preservation efforts in the South that are pretty exciting. Um, Horn Creek Farm in North Carolina, the Georgia Heritage Orchard in uh, in North Georgia. Those are more than apple zoos. You know, they each collect uh, and display hundreds of apple varieties that grew in the South, and they're a genetic repository. But they're also a place for education. They teach grafting workshops. They share grafting wood. Um, 
and especially in that North Georgia project, the Georgia Heritage Orchard, they're actively out there looking for lost apples and talking to people about their family apples and seeing if they can identify what they want, what they are. And they're doing some genetic testing to um, see if, if some of the varieties growing in in far, on old farms and in people's backyards could be some lost apples from, from the South. I think yep. that commercial apple growers, uh, just one final point I'd make on that. I think there's some really smart commercial apple growers in the South who are figuring out how to create a, a marketable app, create an apple market in, a, in, in this region uh, when we're, we're selling apples that are viewed as a commodity, that are a global commodity, what can Southern apples do that's distinctive? And there's some smart orchardists out there figuring that out. More in a moment, but first this message. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a <clears throat> real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify's sleek, reliable POS hardware takes every major payment method and looks fabulous at the same time. With Shopify POS, you can accept credit cards, mobile payments, and every other major payment method, all with low fees and transparent pricing starting on day one. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash drinkbeer. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash drinkbeer to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash drinkbeer. And now back to my conversation with Diane Flynn, the author of Wild, Tamed, Lost, Revived, The Surprising Story of Apples in the South. Going back to... um some of the genetic testing, right? And because I, I, I'm still amazed when I find some of these trees and, and, and this town that I live in in New Jersey right now um, actually had an apple tree um, uh, growing a couple of blocks from where we were and family had lived in the house for, you know, since it was built essentially. And the the, the last person died and um, uh, some developers bought the house and, and rehabbed it. And I walked by one day and saw that they had just cut down this tree and I was furious um because it had been around forever and and in, in my mind i was one of these days just going to go and like grab one of the apples and you know try to figure out what it was and i just never did um i want people to learn from that mistake if if, if somebody is listening if they're in the south or not um and finds one of these old growth trees that's in a place that is you know confusing perhaps or not you know not a, a typical orchard um what is the best way of trying to figure out if that tree is or that apple is special, potentially lost and now found? Um, mm -hmm. what, what, what's a good way to go about doing that? It's complicated. It requires some sleuthing. <laughs> and it, obviously the first thing is to ask the owners, um, do you know what this apple is? Who planted it? Do you know who do you know who planted it? Oh, I live in New Jersey. We don't talk to people. That's, yeah. <laughs> you have to change that. You have to become a Southerner, <laughs> put your Southern hat on. Now, find out if there's any family history attached to it, which might be going back to a previous owner of that property. Um, David Vernon in um, Caswell County, North Carolina, operates a great um, fruit tree nursery called Century Farm and Orchard. And sells sells trees is a great resource for uh, old Southern apple varieties. 
And he he jokes that he can tell when someone calls him um, asking for an apple tree, asking to order an apple tree, he can tell what they're going to order by the by their area code and by their accent. <laughs> <laughs> and and there are apples that are uh, common to areas, you know, Patrick County here, close to where I am in Virginia, they love the Virginia beauty apple. Uh, that's you poll ten people in Patrick County and ask them what their apple is, favorite apple is. I bet none of them say Virginia beauty. And you know, two counties over in North Carolina, they don't know what a Virginia beauty apple is. So some of it is regional. Um, there are some physical characteristics that can be useful, but apples, um, you know, look grow differently in different climates. So the physical characteristics are a bit hard. But we do have genetic testing now, and Washington State University is um, doing DNA testing on apples, and the price has fallen so that it's um, it's reasonable um, if you want to do just a few apples. I've um, learned, I was doing some research at Guilford College in Greensboro, North Carolina, which oh, yeah. is an old Quaker school founded in the early 1800s, and at one time it had an, an orchard on the on the farm property, on the college property, as well as a large farm. And when I was doing my research, a professor told me that there was a really old apple tree on campus. And would I take a look at it? And that it was perhaps in danger of falling over and they didn't know what it was. And would I take a look at it? And it turns out this apple tree is probably over 100 years old and nobody knew what it was. I did a little bit of light pruning after consulting several pomologists about what to do because the entire <laughs> center, the entire center of this precious historic tree uh, was rotten and it just has uh, outer you know outer growth. I immediately gathered grafting wood. It was last winter, and David Vernon at Century Farm and Jason Bowen, the orchardist at Horn Creek, and I all grafted the tree. So. Even if it blows over this winter, we have the DNA of this tree. And uh, I sent off um, the material last summer to Washington State, and um, they were able to determine that it was a, um, a mammoth black twig. So now Guilford College has some history to attach to this beautiful old tree right in the middle of their campus. Oh, that's lovely to hear. And so, and so important. It's, it's, it sort of then to sort of tie it back to the beginning, it speaks to that ubiquitous nature that apples have these days. We just see it all the time. We just sort of take it for granted. Mm -hmm. um, right. Students walk by this tree every day. It's right in the middle of campus. It's on a corner. Um, it's and, and it's been there for decades and decades and decades. And people once depended on that tree. They used the apples perhaps for cider. That's a great cider apple. They certainly um, preserved that apple. They cooked with it. They ate it. They enjoyed it. Generations um, used that fruit. So there's there's a lot of history collected there. Is there a possibility for, or again, maybe renewed interest or budding interest um, in using apples for additional products like our ancestors did 
um, but that maybe have fallen out of fashion? I mean, you, 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 you cited some before and you certainly get into it in the book, but is there, I don't know, could we see additional Apple products reemerge or has, has the fruit been eclipsed by other things and collectively we're just going to think about them as snacks or sips? <laughs> right, right. Oh gosh, we'd have to change our diet for sure to make that happen. But I will note that that um, on a commercial level, one of the things that happened in the South when Washington State became such a force in the Apple world was that the South, big sections of the South, turned to growing processing fruit, um, which is less expensive to grow, and big, big fruit um, uh, uh, companies moved into the Hendersonville, North Carolina, and Win Winchester, Virginia areas. I mean, these are global companies like now Andros Food and Gerber and companies like that. And they bought fruit. If you if you, you ate canned applesauce or canned apples in an apple pie in the um, you know mid to latter part of the 20th century, you were eating apples from North Carolina or Virginia because that's where all the fruit was grown. You know, the largest orchard east of the Rockies was in Winchester, and it was a processing orchard growing mostly York apples, which is a, a famous a processing apple. And that's still there, less so in Hendersonville now, but Andros Foods, a global uh, food processor, is in um, Winchester and still buys um, apples from the orchards there. In fact, this one story I tell in the book, it's a colleague of mine, um, it has um, is transitioning her family orchard over to an organic orchard and is selling um, apples to Andros for organic baby food. Um, uh, and you also saw vinegar plants in West Virginia, North Carolina, and Virginia. Uh, apple cider vinegar was was made in the South. So there still is a market for processing fruit on a commercial scale. As far as a home scale and the way people eat um, and, you know, what, what would get people to eat more fresh fruit, I think better tasting apples would. And, and perhaps that has. I'd have to go out and look at the data, but the popularity of some of these modern varieties like um, Honeycrisp. We, we have and, them in my house constantly. Yeah. 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 I think that giving people another flavor and another taste experience um has enlivened um, apples to people. Has, has you know made them a more interesting fruit. Um, you know whether you like Honeycrisp or not. Not my favorite, but um, that's an apple that has captured a new audience. And I think anything to get Americans to eat healthier food and to eat fresh fruit, fresh food including fresh fruit, is a good thing. I don't think we're going to get people back in kitchen scanning applesauce, though. No, I don't think that's going to happen. I, mean, <laughs> I do. I do that every year. But um, in fact, I do. My grandmother made applesauce in LaGrange, Georgia, and she put red hots in it to, to, to turn them red and give a little spice to it. <laughs> that's I don't know if that's a Southern thing or not. Well, I'm sorry, but, like, um, like, the, like the candy red hots? The candy red hots. She put a few red hots into each, each uh, batch. And I put a few red field apples into each batch of my applesauce 
because it turns it this beautiful, this red fleshed apple turns my applesauce this beautiful rosy color. Huh. Oh, I like that. Um, you you might have just done this, um, but I was going to ask if I, I obviously one I want everybody to go read the book, but but um, um, do you have a challenge or homework or um, a suggestion that everyday folks can do to better connect with apples? Oh gosh, thank you so much for asking me that. I, I, there's so many things people can do. I mean, first of all, just notice the natural world around you, not just apples, but pay attention to the growing world. Even if you live in a city, walk in a park or, or, you know, go for a stroll and, and pay attention to the natural world around you, you know, turn off your phone, uh, take your earbuds out, listen to the birds, listen to the sound of leaves as you walk through them. And pay attention to the growing world around you. You know, our our forefathers and mothers were great noticers. They had to notice the natural world because they were feeding themselves. They couldn't go to the grocery store and buy apples from New Zealand or Washington State. They had to pay attention to growing things and make use of them. And we don't have to do that so much now. I think that's one way to just connect with the world around you. And that's enriching, even if it's not apples. And for apples, if you don't shop at a farmer's market, just try new apples in the grocery store. There, there, There's a pretty good variety now of modern apples that are sold. If anybody can get their hands on a gold rush apple, um, which is a modern apple, but it's pretty widely sold, it's, it's not going to be shiny and yellow or green or red it's a it's a a bit of a rusted rusty coat apple a russeted apple but it is just delicious it's great for for baking or cooking it's delicious for eating um and that's a new flavor that you could try other than honey crisp okay and finally if you shop at farmers markets seek out markets that have uh, apple growers and ask them to tell you what fruit they're excited about and and tell them you know try a new apple ask them you know to what are their old-fashioned apples that they have and they'll pull some out they'll have a few trees because they're likely multi-generation growers and their grandparents or great-grandparents will have had a favorite apple and i am sure it is still in their family oh that's incredible the book is called Wild, Tamed, Lost, Revived, The Surprising Story of Apples in the South. And the author is Diane Flint. Thank you for, thank you, one, for writing this. Um, and then two, for sharing your insights today. It, it, it's been a real pleasure reading this book. And I hope um, everybody goes and adds it to their collection because it's it, it's so important. Well, thank you, John. You are an insightful reader and you asked thoughtful questions you made me think i've learned from this interview and uh, thank you for having me on uh, you're too kind what's your favorite apple tell me about it you can email me it's john hall that's j-o-h-n-h-o-l-l at allaboutbeer.com that's also how you can get in touch with questions comments and guest suggestions 
A reminder, go visit allaboutbeer.com. There, you can check out the podcast page, the merch page, and read great new content, as well as the archives going back to 1979. Follow All About Beer on social media at All About Beer. And if you're interested in supporting journalism in the beer space, email us at info at allaboutbeer.com or go to patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. Speaking of that, here is a quick word from this episode's sponsor. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash drink beer. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash drink beer to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash drink beer. Don't forget all about beer has a podcast channel. Now just search and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. Steal this beer has new episodes every Monday and the BYO nano podcast comes out on the 15th of every month. As for this show, Mitch Weber does the music, Jeff Quinn designed our logo, and I'm John Hall. New episodes release every Wednesday, and Matt's not going to be back again to drink beer and to think beer.